Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Scholarly Communications channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jen Hoyer, and today I'm joined by Galina Ustinova-Stepanovich, author of Monumental Names, Archival Aesthetics, and the Conjuration of History in Moscow. Monumental Names was published by Rutledge in December 2022. Grounded in ethnographic and archival research with Last Address and Memorial, one of the oldest independent archives of Soviet political repressions in Moscow and a winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, this book examines a version of archival activism that is centered on various practices of documentation and commemoration of many dead victims of historical violence in Russia to understand what kind of historicity is produced when a single name is added to an endless list. Drawing on anthropology, history, philosophy, and aesthetic theory, the book yields a new perspective on the politics of archival and historical justice, while it critically engages with debates on relations and distinctions between names and numbers of the dead, monumental art and its political effects, law and history, image and text, and the specific one and the infinite many. Galina Ustinova Stepanovich is a lecturer in social anthropology and sociology at the Department of Sociology at the University of Glasgow in the United Kingdom. Galina, welcome to New Books Network. Uh, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, and before we start chatting about your book, I would love if you could share a little bit about yourself, where you grew up and went to school, and what brought you to your research in anthropology and archives. Uh, it, it is probably quite a long story, but um, I was uh, born in Minsk, uh, that, uh, and that's um, still in the Soviet Belarus, so in the Soviet Union, to um, a mixed family, but we were quite sort of assimilated, ethnically um, mixed, but quite assimilated into then dominant Soviet um, culture. So I grew up speaking um, Russian at home. And um, I, I finished school in Belarus, and that was in the early 1990s when so many things changed. Um, so it, it was the demise of the Soviet Union, of course, you know, but also the emergence of um, a new kind of totalitarian regime, you know, so um, very soon after I finished school, Lukashenko, who is still the president of Belarus, came to power. And um, for me, like for many young people, um, migration um, seemed like um, an answer. So there was quite a lot of 
perhaps um, romantic ideas floating about, um, you know, about going to the West, going to Europe, going elsewhere, anywhere, very much elsewhere. And uh, I uh, won a scholarship to study um, cultural studies and modern languages in Athens, in Greece. And it was um, a very nice scholarship. And that's where um, I met a few really inspirational teachers who um, started talking um, to us, to me, about anthropology and philosophy. And um, it was such um, a wonderful eye-opening experience, really a transformative experience to um, imagine that you can study social practices, um, that you can do research, that uh, you can develop um, a certain vocabulary for um, understanding and explaining um, different social and political formations to others, you know. So um, after that, just after uh, you know two courses, I decided that um, I would really like to continue with social anthropology. So I started applying for different courses, and I did an MPhil degree at Central European University in Budapest, and then I um, continued um, um, studying anthropology at UCL in London. So that's University College. Um, London and uh, you know again you know I had some really wonderful um, mentors there so my my supervisors of course um, who who you know showed me how to pay attention to questions of historicity and time and materiality and I specialized initially in anthropology of religion which I think shows a little bit um, in the book as well you know, so um, I continue to be quite a versatile anthropologist. Um, so I kind of describe self, describe myself as a social anthropologist you know, with expertise in anthropology of religion, history and time, and political anthropology. And I think that that kind of heady mix is uh, very evident in the book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There's like a lot of different um, uh, different disciplines and um, uh, kind of intersecting ideas and conversations. I really appreciated that. Um, yeah, so so turning to the book, Monumental Names, I was wondering if we could start by giving a bit of context for listeners. Uh, you spend a lot of time discussing two main projects, Memorial and The Last Address. So could you share a bit about those for anyone who isn't familiar with them? What they are? Well, um, when so there was quite a big gap uh, between the time I left um, um, or last visited Russia, especially Moscow. So I have family in Moscow, you know, and there was a really long gap and uh, there was a reluctance uh, um, on kind of my part, you know, about going back, you know. So uh, there was um, a very peculiar sense of intimacy with Moscow and at the same time this uh, desire to escape it. So then there was um, a research opportunity to go back to Moscow and kind of uh, look at it again through this lens of intimacy and estrangement. So um, I went back to Moscow with a particular project in mind. So I was trying to um, explore um the freedom of conscience as a human right and how it was articulated in the Soviet times and later in 
contemporary um, Russian Federation. And that's why I just, that's how I basically discovered Memorial as an archive, you know. So I instrumentalized Memorial because I heard that they are an archive. But when I went there, it turned out that they actually share offices with Memorial as a human rights organization, you know, and they do lots of very interesting projects. Um, and, you know, they very present lots of political prisoners in courts. Um, and then it turned out that also just a few doors further down the corridor, uh, the last address was there. And uh, Memorial does all sorts of things, you know, so they're not just one organization, they're a huge network and they do research, they produce their own research, so they publish their own books, they have a library, they have a small museum and, um, yeah, they do human rights um, advocacy. Um, And the last address um, uh, also... A kind of participates in this bigger project of uh, memorial, uh, but what they do, they um, uh, install commemoration plaques on facades of buildings. Uh, they install a plaque for each victim of um, the Stalinist terror in Moscow, but now also outside of Moscow. And their project is quite similar to um, Stolperstein, Stone, Stumbling Stones in Germany. So uh, they do lots of different things. So these two organizations and um, the book describes really just a fraction of the activities that um, they sort of champion in Moscow. Yeah, yeah, I really enjoyed learning more. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk more about the, the different projects they do. Um, and also one other piece of terminology I wanted to talk about before we really get into the book, I loved that you refer to the people working on these projects as memory activists. I was wondering if you could talk about why you chose that label for these individuals rather than calling them memory workers or archivists, which are terms I'm, I guess, more familiar with. Uh, what do you understand a memory activist to be that's a little yes. different? I, I quite like your term of memory workers, and it could have worked as well. So memory activist is a, a, bo- a borrowing. It's a citation from um, Jonah Rubin's work on um, a memory activists in Spain who are trying to um, commemorate the victims of Franco's regime. Um, so initially, I wanted to refer to the people I worked with um, as memorial activists uh, because they have a very strong sense of identity and they call themselves memorialists, you know, so uh, memorialty in um, Russian, you know. But then I thought since there is already that term memory activist, you know, I could um, just reuse it in my own ethnography. Um, it comes close, but it's not exactly the self-designation that, um, you know, research, my research participants um, use. But what was really interesting about um, that particular term is, of course, the activist dimension. So um, memory is never passive. So it's not just some cognitive um, recollection of what happened, you know, so memory always has this dimension of um, publicity, you know, but um, in case of Memorial and the last address, I really, um, I was fascinated by how they carry the imperative to remember 
the many dead of political violence in Russia into the public sphere. You know, so they they literally take um, both memories and historical accounts um, into the streets of Moscow, and uh, I thought the term captures you know that uh, movement of um, history from an archive as some kind of enclosure into the open spaces, into the city, you know. So I thought the term was just really appropriate to use. Yeah, I love that. I mean, it is really appropriate. And I love how it also builds on this like lineage of, um, as you described, um, using the same terminology uh, for individuals uh, doing similar work in Spain. I think that's Mm. really powerful. Uh, so moving probably, to the oh, go ahead. No, no, it's probably part of um, anthropology's comparative work. You know, like I mean, we really build on each other's work. You know, like I mean, so I, I thought there were many parallels and, of course, many historical specificities. You know, to Franco's regime and, of course, Stalin's uh, terror. Yeah. Um, so getting into the introduction of the book. You state that the names of the dead are central to the work of these memory activists, and you ask what the names of the dead are and do. And you wrote that the initial impetus for this book is an ethnographic observation that memorial activists give primacy to singular names of each victim over the final number of people executed during Stalin's reign. Building from that, uh, could you speak more about what inspired you to do this research and what your goals were um, in, you know, really focusing on on this work of names and naming? Yes, so um, perhaps because I'm a social anthropologist, so the goals um, kind of um, emerged gradually, you know, so in a way the research question of anthropology sometimes comes last, you know, because uh, um, it, it's a sort of verification of all the insights and all the um, sort of um, unexpected um, encounters and, you know, thoughts and experience that you have during uh, fieldwork and research. So um, one of the things uh, that um, was really striking, and this is something which um, shifted my attention from just working using memorials archives to actually uh, focusing on what they do and their practices uh, was the um, sheer ubiquity of names of the dead. You know, so um, you know their office looks just a very ordinary um, office of any organization you can think of, you know, with printers and bookshelves and things like that. Uh, But at the same time, practically any book you pick or any conversation you would join um, would involve um, either references or sometimes even listing uh, of names of the dead. Um, So there was this um, really strong um, sense of being in the presence um, of names of the dead, not necessarily in the presence of the dead as such. So, um, uh, you know, that, that that would be slightly different, perhaps, um, experience, you know. So um, it was just names of the dead, you know, in different form. Um, so one example is, uh, for example, uh, if one example is the, um, the books, uh, which are, basically catalogs of names of the dead. So it could be um, 
you know, hundreds of pages uh, of um, alphabetically arranged names of people killed in certain places or people who died during a particular year. And, um, you know, these are, you know, these are books um, which contain very little sort of biographical detail, you know, sort of the... um, you know, the kind of bare facts of somebody's life, you know, and, you know, they, they're used to advance archival research, you know, so they're really important historiographic anchors, you know, and that was interesting first because of the sheer scale, you know, so names absolutely everywhere, but also because there was this um, stark contrast between how I got used to thinking about um, Soviet history and um, Soviet historiography um, would often use names as um, kind of vehicles of persuasion. So the, again, in Soviet historiography and in Russian historiography today, um, uh, there are references to the scale of the sacrifice of the Soviet army, for example, during the Second World War. So all you hear are numbers, huge numbers, you know, so millions of people who died. But then uh, when it comes to the debates about the um, scale of the Stalinist terror, you know, there is another kind of tension. So there is a tendency, of course, to downplay the numbers. Um, There are arguments about official statistics. And uh, there are arguments about unofficial statistics. So the the numbers which are um, known or estimated, which are significantly higher. And I thought... um, there, there was already that tension. So why would you do a similar kind of um, work, you know, trying to remember political violence, but um, memorial focuses on names while official historiographers are trying to pin down that number, you know? So it looked quite interesting, you know, to to compare those two, you know? And on top of that, I, I did notice reluctance of uh, people who work in memorial to reduce people to numbers, you know? Mm-hmm. So they, they always emphasize in every conversation, they emphasize that behind those numbers are real people. Right. So I thought that that was very interesting to kind of, tease out anthropologically yeah absolutely and i mean it makes me think of so many parallel situations um that we memorialize um in uh in chapter one you then shift to uh talking about a related project it's a monument to victims of the stalinist terror in kaminaka could you share about that project and the important work that's done there by naming all of the individuals um, who were killed there, which ends up being a um, a really diverse group of people. Yeah, that, that's a very, you know, kind of, I think it's a very accurate way to um, summarize and kind of highlight what's really important about that, that chapter. So um, Komunarka is basically a burial ground. You know, there is a little bit of... Um, kind of um, 
perhaps folk historiography going on about it. You know, some people say it's the shooting ground where lots of people were executed in 1937 all the way till 1952. But um, it is more likely that it's just uh, a mass grave. You know, it's a few, several mass graves, you know. And what it looks like um, is um, a, a kind of really nice... Um, forest uh, area which is enclosed uh, by a fence and when you enter this space um, there are several monuments Um, so there used to be nothing at all and um, um, family members and uh, friends of people who um, are known to um, to have been buried there, um, they uh, used to go and pin down, uh, you know, just little portraits, you know, and leave flowers uh, close to random trees because nobody really knows where the, um, the you know, basically the dead bodies uh, were buried there uh, because, you know, a mass grave it becomes this entanglement of uh, people, you know, so they, they've never been... Um, exhumed, you know, there are no excavations, you know, like I mean, so you just have this forestry, um, just a piece of, you know, just some wood basically, and uh, um, uh, woodland area. And, uh, uh, you know, later there was the initiative and memorial um, and the last address were involved in into that, you know, they decided to build a monument. So a monument looks again as um, a list of names, you know, so these are just uh, metal sheets, um, a very simple design, you know, but um, sort of striking in its simplicity, you know, and uh, it, the, the monument itself was designed and built by Pyotr Pasternak, who who talks about, um, sometimes he talks about his um you know, sort of a good artistic sense for fonts, you know, like so mm. the way the, the names are inscribed is quite important, you know, so um, they, they're inscribed alphabetically and um, that particular um, monumental form, again, as you say, has lots of parallels. It's really familiar, you know, so the Vietnam War Memorial, you know, it's also, you know, um, um, just lists of names, you know, the um, Ground Zero Memorial, for example, uh, these are also names, although um, it's a very different arrangement, you know, so they're not alphabetically um, arranged on those monuments, you know, so... Um, I, I had a chance to go um, and attend the opening ceremony uh, of the Komodarka uh, monument. And it was really interesting because, of course, there were these speeches and, you know, one of the members of the memorial, she um, spoke with this um, really deep felt sense of, uh, you know, pride that they managed to figure out all the names of the people uh, buried there, you know, like, and she was really emphatic. She, she kept saying, you know, so we have a comprehensive list, we know them all. And um, that kind of brought it home for me, you know, how um, important it is for memorial to really identify every victim. Um, so their archive is not complete until they know everyone who was killed um, mm-hmm. or who died because of political violence. And at the same time, um, 
I witnessed during that event, you know, I witnessed a kind of controversy um, brewing there because uh, some um, descendants, you know, some family members, um, children sometimes of uh, people who are buried um, in Komodarka, um, they protested against um, the inclusion of perpetrators on the same list. Mm-hmm. So the to, just to understand that, you know, look, uh, the Stalinist terror was a kind of um, self-eating regime, you know, like, I mean, so people who killed someone could be later denounced and killed and buried next to their victims, you know, like, I mean, so there, there was this kind of constant um, rotation of victims and killers and killers becoming victims as well because... Um, uh, they were not um, executed for killing others. You know, they were usually executed on um, either false accusations, you know, like, or they became themselves victims of the purges. You know, so um, um, some of um, the uh, memory activists who were present there, they they tried to argue with uh, the descendants of uh, the dead, you know, like, I mean, trying to explain that what they're trying to do is to remember all the victims without judging them. And, um, you know, they continued kind of arguing that everyone has to be included because they were all victims because they did not have a fair trial because, uh, you know, these were false accusations, you know, because they were sometimes executed, you know, within hours of, you know, uh, interrogation, you know. And um, for the descendants, it was really difficult to... um, to accept, you know, but, um, I, you know, I kind of tried to understand as well, you know, look, I mean, how can you um, put together um, victims and perpetrators um, on the same list, on the same monument? And that's why um, I, I, I kind of coined this notion of the every all, you know, look, I mean, because right. what, what, what matters um, here is that um, Memorial is trying to um, to see every dead person as that kind of singularity and singularity not in the sense of uh, a part of a whole, you know, but and not in the sense of a unique individual either, but um, as, as a person, a human being who um, is always transgressive of um, a particular um, way of thinking about people. Uh, sometimes it's um, somewhat nationalistic discourse, for example, thinking about ethnicities or groups, you know. So um, Memorial um, and their historiography, they're oriented towards um, singularities who are not part of a homogenized and coherent group. So they see... Um, a possibility of bringing everyone together into this multiplicity and then keeping the differentiation within, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a really interesting, um, almost philosophical approach to history, which was fascinating to see um, sort of enacted during the opening of Komunarka. 
Absolutely. Yeah, there was there was something that I scribbled down that you wrote in that chapter that I really like. You talked about the radical gesture of non-numerical counting and commemorating the dead through names. And I think that like this is where we see specifically it, it is a really important gesture um, that allows for a different kind of memorialization than lumping all those people together with a number yeah. wouldn't feel perhaps no. the Right. In the way that then listing them all by name allows for a different kind of understanding. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, this is where, you know, perhaps the, the books um, gets um, a little bit theoretical, you know, okay, so how do we see names of the dead as, um, I say, also kind of non-numerical, but also quasi-numerical um, items, almost objects, you know, so... Um, you know, they, they, they are moved about and they um, they are placed on lists, you know, and I think that lists um, are sort of accumulations of um, the dead, you know, look at me. So it, it's a kind of frame which brings everyone together. So one, one of the interesting aspects about um, historiography um, that kind of memorial weaves together in Moscow is uh, that uh, names of the dead um, are used um, to as a counterpoint to numbers of the dead, but at the same time, um, they um, they have a different way of um, pointing to the scale of the mass atrocities um, in Moscow. So um, in the book, I argue that um, names do not have uh, a numerical um, value, so they're not exactly the same as just counting. Uh, names of the dead, you know, but at the same time, they do come together um, into these lists, you know, which become sort of um, um, a frame for um, names of the dead, you know, and um, this is something which is um, very evident in many things that Memorial does, including the um, Komunarka monument, you know, like, I mean, of um, trying to bring the full list of the people who were buried there, but at the same time um, refusing to um, segregate them into victims and perpetrators and also refusing to give that um, final um, kind of numerical value to to them. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I think some of those ideas and motivations tie into what you talk about in the second chapter, which is called The Judgment Day of History, uh, where you talk about relationships between reconciliation, rehabilitation, and justice. And you talk about some tension between writing history for reconciliation, writing history for justice. Could you explain how those ideas and goals are embodied by different naming and commemoration projects? Um, yeah, so that's um, another kind of um, argument that comes from um, an ethnographic observation. So um, uh, I was quite surprised to see that um, there are other projects um, in Moscow uh, that seem to replicate what Memorial does to some extent. And uh, there is one um, kind of civil society organization, you know, I call them the brethren, you know, um, I I do this bit of um, self-censorship, especially today, I feel it's kind of really important because I don't want to implicate people um, um, into 
kind of the narratives in my book, you know, so um, I, I am a little bit concerned about um, how they can be affected, you know, like, I mean, when um, in the current climate uh, in Moscow, you know, but um, so the brethren are um, an Orthodox Christian um Organization, uh, they're not part, or they're not part of the Russian Orthodox Church, but uh, they um, cooperate. You know, so um, uh, you know they they also do um, different um, projects to commemorate the dead of the Stalinist terror. Of course, there were uh, many priests and many religious uh, people who died during this period, who were killed during this period, and this distinction is also very important, you know, because, um, for example, uh, for Orthodox priests who were killed, you know, we still, we we know now their names, um, Memorial and uh, the brethren, um, they, um, you know, they sometimes um, commission the last address to install the plaques. Um, so they are remembered, you know, uh, they are remembered by the brethren, for example, in prayer. But um, at the same time, there was um, never an official trial, a juridical trial, of uh, the perpetrators. And one of the reasons why you can't have um, a juridical trial, a conventional trial in court of the perpetrators is because they are dead. You know, so there is that very kind of um, simple explanation. But at the same time, conceptually, it's not simple at all. Um, so what it points to um this um, sort of legal inability to try the dead, to put the dead on trial, uh, it points to certain limits of justice uh, that most of us seek in courts. Um, And the memorial are really aware of that. And I feel that even though sometimes they say, oh, I wish we could somehow initiate a trial of Stalin, you know, like, I mean, they basically, um, as historians and uh, memory activists, they step into the shoes of judges, you know, so they judge history, but they do it through means other than conventional courts. Um, And it's um, fascinating because it's a different kind of justice and it's a different kind of um, justice because it is... um, founded on the impossibility of having legal redress uh, by conventional means. And at the same time, the brethren who are Russian Orthodox believers, um, so to speak, they, um, they say that there is no need to seek justice um, in the present. Although you need to remember the dead, uh, which is also um, a religious imperative, you don't need to um, initiate justice and you don't need to speak about justice because justice, and this is really interesting, uh, they say justice has already been meted, but in a different temporality of divine justice. So... You know, from the Russian Orthodox point of view, there is such a thing as the Judgment Day. And the Judgment Day, 
is kind of postponed if we think about it um, as human beings who are alive today, but it has already happened uh, for God. And therefore, there is um, a really interesting um, sort of temporal discrepancy between um, memorial activism and the commemoration and memory work of uh, the preference, because... uh, for memorial, um, justice is essentially a secular affair. You know, it's something that you um, um, you hope to achieve today, you know. But for the brethren, you know, they have a really extended sense of justice, you know, because it, it just goes into the transcendental. And, uh, they, mm-hmm, and they, they, they don't, they kind of, like, for memorial, the brethren, um, they just, Coexists, you know, but um, the brethren they they are quite critical of memorial because they they argue that um, m- memorial um, uh, just doesn't let go of the past and this um, sort of positionality towards um, irreconcilability, you know, perhaps or like this uh, reluctance to reconcile with the past is um, something that the brethren see as vengefulness uh, that um, they disapprove of, you know. Like, so there are these two projects that seem to to do the same thing, you know, but they are underpinned by a completely different sense of justice and time. Yeah, absolutely. I thought, I mean, you're, as you say, they're doing such similar work. Um, and I really liked the way you drew out those, those differences. Um, yeah. Um, lots to think about for, I guess, like the motivations of, of different kinds of archiving and memorialization. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. You know. So you know what you you definitely see are different modalities um, of um, approaching, um, materializing, speaking about um, the same historical events. You know, and that's also quite interesting because the events are you know, well-known, even though now we see um, the kind of emergence of um, new revisionist history, perhaps, you know, like, I mean, um, uh, which is um, sponsored by the um, the state, you know, and, um, you know, the state which obviously is involved, you know, not involved, is responsible for uh, the war um, in Ukraine today. And... Um, you know, so yeah, there are there are lots of political implications as well to um, seeing the same historical event through a different historiographic lens. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's move on to cha- talking about chapter three, which is titled "A Faceless Name," and this is where you speak more about the role of faces or the absence of faces in memorial work. And you ask some questions about uh, the role of faces in uh, memorialization of the dead. So I wanted to ask you the questions that you um, posit in this book. Is a photograph face of the dead 
a trope of political remembrance of violent history that erased them? And why are faces so desirable as a constellation of intimate and historical memory? Um, yeah, so I I don't have an answer. It's one of those questions that, you know, I don't have a really good answer. <laughs> um, um, so one thing that, again, I noticed, you know, and um, so it's a kind of another scene of commemoration, if you want, in Moscow, you know, and it's called Donskoye Graveyard, you know, like, I mean, and, um, you know, so it's, um, it, it's kind of on the ground, so, uh, close to the monastery and, uh, you know, parts of that monastery were um, kind of um, confiscated or reappropriated by uh, the Soviet authorities and they built this um, technological miracle for those days, you know, the first crematorium, you know, so they built the first crematorium and, um, you know, initially it was even almost like a spectacle so people could come and watch the cremation of the dead, you know, like I mean, so there was a glass wall and, you know, crowds would gather, you know, but then, of course, the relatives protested, you know, like, and uh, um, that kind of stopped, you know, but then um, the same crematorium was um, used um, during the um, Stalinist terror in 1930s to cremate uh, people. So it is kind of almost um, a mythical land of um, horror, you know, where, uh, you know, we have um, some historical accounts, you know, but also imaginaries of um, spaces where, you know, hundreds and thousands of cadavers would be delivered on trucks at night and somebody would take them off the trucks and, um, you know, burn them. And then the ashes were carried out in buckets and basically uh, um, placed into three mass graves, you know, so those mass graves are there today. And, you know, if you can imagine, you know, these are basically layers and layers of ashes of, of uh, people, you know, so there is this, you know, for me, um, kind of a chilling sense of um, aggregation of many, many people into a very small, narrow space of a mass grave, you know. So it's, you know, this method of, um, you know, cremating the killed and the dead, you know, it's this compression of the ashes into the mass graves, um, struck me as terrifying, you know. So um, I visited this place and then I joined the history walks with um, one of the historians who works for Memorial. Um, and he explained, he gave a little bit more um, historical context to that, you know. But then what you also see is um, the effort of uh, the descendants to almost um, kind of um, extricate, you know, pull out, you know, their you know, their loved ones from those mass graves. And they can do that, you know, they, they can't, of course, identify anyone, you know, but they can do that but by placing photographs of the dead on the mass grave. So the mass grave, um, you know, those three mass graves, they look, um, they're completely covered in tiny portraits of, of you know, the dead, you know, and um, uh, 
in Russian cemeteries, you know, people do put um, portraits um, or, or, of the dead when they were much younger ones, you know, living people, you know. So it is common to see photographs of people on their tombstones, you know. So you have this, uh, you know, space and, you know, perhaps a hundred photographs kind of pinned on top of that. And, you know, when I was looking at that, um, it was very clear what um, the the descendants and the relatives, what they were trying to accomplish, you know. So they were trying to restore precisely the singularity of the people they lost, you know. And sometimes they would have a cenotaph not far, an empty grave not far, uh, with a proper tombstone, you know, like a mesa, also with flowers. But uh, when I was looking um, at those faces, you know, I just, I was struck by how little I could learn from um, looking at those faces, you know, because um, although um, there is a broader context to uh, the killings of those people that we know from history books and whatnot in our research, um, at the same time, you know, I I knew very little about those individual faces. You know, and this, um, you know, what what I refer to as biographical paucity. You know, how little information you gained from faces was really striking. And at the same as you say before, at the same time as you say before, um, many people they they sort of feel that in the presence of the face they learn something about the person. And um, that that chapter explores, you know, the um, you know that that peculiar capacity of faces to occlude the person behind them, you know, and you know the the kind of effort that goes into trying to bring them back, perhaps as people with full biographies, you know. And I thought the portraits. Um, uh, had a very limited capacity to do that, uh, which was really unusual because usually we see portraits as a resemblance of um, the person, you know, like I mean, but I, I was trying to say that portraits can also be very generic, you know, but because they are so generic, they again afford an understanding of a mass atrocity. So they don't tell us much about a personal biography, but they point us towards an understanding of a mass atrocity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, because as you say, it's instinctual to to seek out those faces. But th- yeah. the way that you've kind of positioned that discussion in in this context of thinking about names and really reflecting on the power of names, I think it shows that really clear um, difference in in what each is capable of. Um, and then you also talk about physical representation in chapter four, discussing a process for deciding on appropriate large-scale monuments to uh, mass atrocities. And you talk about the struggles with figuring out adequate physical memorials that aren't reductive somehow. And you contrast the use of names on monuments to um, disaggregate the mass murder into personal stories alongside um, a project, well, how the last address uses just a cube-shaped hole as a visual representation. Um, So could you speak more about the real difficulty of creating physical representations of tragedy and the kinds of solutions that 
you've seen proposed? Yes, um, I think this is the question of um, representation in general. So uh, when it comes to monuments, you know, of course, we have lots of figurative monuments. Um, and then um, um, I actually used memorials archives, you know, and um, I found um, documentary records of um, the attempt to create the first uh, monument to victims of um, Stalinist terror in Moscow. And uh, it was an open competition and it was open to anyone. You know, so people were sending their um, projects sometimes in um, like cookie biscuit boxes, you know, like yes. they, you know, they would draw inside them or use uh, matchsticks and threads, you know, like I mean, yeah, to try. And so, yeah, yeah. And, you know, some people did not have uh, those skills. They just described what a good monument would be. You know? And, you know, so there were letters and, you know, sometimes postcards, you know, and there were a few kind of um, unofficial entries, you know, um, from um, architects as well, you know, like me, so much more kind of um, refined, you know, um, um, kind of proposals for, for a monument, you know. And um, many of those monuments, they were trying to use and then subvert images of the... Um, uh, of the Soviet violence, you know, so things like barbed, and it's not only Soviet, of course, you know, but things like barbed wires or a few people proposed to um, put, um, to create another monument to Stalin, you know, but then with victims, for example, crushed under his feet, you know, like, I mean, and, you know, so this kind of, um, uh, you know, attempt to, um, to, create a slightly more realist, perhaps, representation of the past, you know, look, and at the same time subvert its meaning, you know, and, you know, show the effects of Stalinism on people, you know. So there were quite a lot of proposals that involved either crushing or uh, confining people, you know, creating sometimes a sensory experience, you know, of confinement. And um, there was... Not long ago, you know, so that was the project from, you know, 1990, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, and uh, 1989, 1990. And um, there was a more recent uh, competition for another um, a monument like this, you know, and this time it's a state-sponsored uh, monument um, which was built and it's called the Wall of Sorrow, the Wall of Grief, uh, differently translated. You know, and, um, you know, that monument also experimented with either uh, figurative representations, symbolic representations of um, uh, mass atrocities. But I was also struck that um, there was quite a lot of um, continuity of form and the cube came up um, several times, you know, well, you know, many times um, in um, kind of different interpretations of the cube, either as a square shape, sort of flat shape on the ground or as a dimensional cube. And um, in the end, you know, the monument that is central to memorial um, public uh, um, activities 
is the Solovetsky stone, which is basically a boulder. Um, it's an irregular shaped cube, but nevertheless, it's a cube which is placed now right outside of the formerly KGB and KVD building. Now it's um, FSB, of course. Um, and you know, the same kind of cube appears on the last address plugs, you know, like, and um, what's fascinating about the last address plugs is that they also, they, they, they look a little bit like a postcard, you know, like a meso rectangular shaped um, stainless steel uh, object, uh, flat, um, and or to the right, you have the biographical details of um, the victim um, engraved, and they include, you know, the name, date of birth, date of execution, sometimes date of rehabilitation, you know. Uh, uh, but to the left is this... Um, empty space, a cutout, basically, on the plug, a hole, you know, a square hole like that. And um, when I talk to the people who come to install those plugs, you know, they had, you know, different explanations of what it stands for, you know, so, um, and most people referred to a missing portrait. And, you know, some explanations were quite um, sort of pragmatic like it would be really difficult to engrave a portrait of a person you know like I mean so it's cheaper and easier to do just a cutout like this um, the uh, people who uh, are kind of behind designing it because there was uh, a group you know so um, Alexander Brodsky is the person who designed the plug you know but uh, Eugene Ars another um, uh, Architect, he was involved in um, into designing that. You know, they um, speak in interviews about the um, kind of uh, you know the sig- significance of that whole. You know, so you know they they say it signals um, a loss of a human life. It, it signals absence. You know, but then once it's placed on the facade of the building, it also allows uh, the building itself to come through the hole. You know, so the you know the last address plugs are installed on um, buildings where people lived. You know, so that's the last um, address where they lived before they were arrested and before they were um, killed. You know, so. Um, you know, there is kind of a way to um, connect this um, loss, you know, with the um, kind of the texture of the everyday life that comes through it, you know, like, I mean, so there is um, that attempt to um, bring the dead and the living together again, you know, so that, that was quite interesting, you know, but at the same time, you know, when I was um, looking at this whole, you know, at the indeterminacy of it, you know, I started thinking about, uh, you know, the mass of the mass atrocity, you know. So uh, when we hear a mass atrocity, um, we tend to try and figure out what the atrocity was about, you know. So the mass, you know, is um, not significantly examined, you know. But then um, I... I kind of imagine that the whole is also the space which stands not for the one but for the many because, you know, as an empty, you know, as, as a whole, you can just keep 
you can keep depositing, you know, names and the debt into it. And it, and it seemed endless, you know, like, and I, I thought, um, you know, it was um, a fascinating kind of architectural um, conceptualization, perhaps, or architectural solution, you know, to the problem of singularity and the multitude that uh, mass atrocity stands for. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, the physical representation um, and then that empty, empty physical representation, just like really interesting. Um, and then I was, I loved moving into the next chapter where you descri- describe um, the return of the names because then we're confronting a memorialization organized by Memorial that's actually more of a performance than the other vis- visual and, and physical representation. So could you describe that and the impact of like giving voice to all of the names that are collected? Um, yeah, so um, again, you know, so this is a really important um, event. If you can imagine um, a kind of um, calendar in uh, memorial's existence, you know, like I mean, so the cyclical perhaps calendar, you know, kind of the way we have, you know, important religious or other holidays happening every year, you know. So on the 29th of um, October, um, memorial and memory activists, you know, because it is a network, you know, so uh, they take um, names of the dead and they bring them out into the public, you know, so if before they're sort of tucked away in their archives and they're used, you know, for different reasons, you know, there is one day when uh, they're read out loud in the central square. And there are two important things about it. First of all, um, the event takes place on the 29th of October. And that's a day before the official national day of um, remembering um, victims of the Stalinist terror and political repressions. So uh, this way, uh, kind of, we, we, this way we see how Memorial is trying to differentiate itself from official historiography. And it's not only because they were genuinely the first ones um, who launched so many initiatives to, um, you know, find out more about the dead, to recover the names and so on and so forth, you know, but because, you know, um, fundamentally their historiography is different. You know, it's different uh, when it comes to its premises and it's different when it comes to what they aim to achieve. So they they are really um, separate from the nationalist, patriotic kind of discourses that we um, hear um, in the mass media, for example, in Russia or from the, um, uh, from the Russian government. So... Um, they another interesting aspect. So that's one thing: the 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 time of uh, the return of the names, and the other interesting aspect is that um, names of the dead are handed out to strangers. So, um, and even if you had an experience of political repressions in your family, the expectation is that first you will read the name of a stranger. And then you can add a name of your own dead, so to speak. Um, And, 
you know, when, when it started, um, you know, some more than 10 years ago now, you know, like, I mean, there were just a few people and, you know, it took just a couple of hours, you know, but until recently, the event would take full 12 hours from 10 a.m. till 10 p.m. This was the officially permitted time, you know, because you need to coordinate that with uh, the um, city council. And, you know, there are crowds and crowds of people. So I attended it three times, uh, three years in a row. And uh, there were always people who never had a chance to stand in front of the microphone because the queue was so long, you know, and um, in a way it is exhausting and the weather was terrible every time. And, um, you know, what you stand, you know, so you stand there in this queue with a, a piece of paper, the name of the person who was illegitimately and violently killed. And then you come to the microphone and you only say the name of that person. And what was really interesting to me is that, again, kind of building on the previous argument about this biographical paucity, you you learn very little um, about that person. I mean, your imagination kind of fills in the gaps, you know, but, you know, in reality, you know very little about the person. So there is a peculiar sense of identification, you know, but that identification comes through the performativity of the name, you know, because uh, what you do, you speak the name out loud the way you would introduce yourself, you know, so you kind of momentarily almost become um, a vehicle for the name of that that person. And, um, of course, that creates a sense of community, but it's a different kind of community. It's not a community based on identification. So you don't have to have um, shared experience or you don't have to have shared religious or ethnic identity. None of that, you know. So the identification comes through the ritual that you perform. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, this is perhaps where my background in anthropology of religion shows, you know, um, the importance of enunciation that we see in different rituals, you know, so not just doing the ritual, you know, but also chanting, um, speaking names of um, God, for example, saying prayers out loud. So there are so many rituals where um, um, the sound, the speech are central, you know. So I was trying to understand what happens when the names, they just... um, a leap from one register to another. You know, first they were textual, then they uh, enunciated in the sound, they become auditory, then they're also given um, a body of a stranger who seems to carry the name. You know, so by, a clue, by hiding your own name, you voice out the name of um, the dead, you know, like, and I thought that was really fascinating, you know, like, and um, um, of course the... Um, this is the first, well, um, it's not exactly um, the first year, you know, like, but um, the last couple of years, there was no chance to do the return of the names, you know, but uh, Memorial, they came up with a new idea. So they use now digital technologies, basically, you can get in touch with Memorial, they will send you the names of the dead, and you can still say them at 
any point, you know, in any place in the world, and then you return the uh, recorded video and they put them together into um, an event, you know, which also lasts 12 hours and you can watch it on YouTube and you see people around the world standing somewhere, you know, so it kind of continues now in the digital world, you know, so there is a virtual reality aspect to it now. That's so powerful. Yeah. Well, and I guess thinking about what Memorial is, is doing right now, you conclude the book with a discussion of what you learned from Memorial and the last address, but also the disruption that these projects have faced um, right now as Memorial has been officially liquidated by the Russian court. Um, so how do you see this changing or not the work that they have done and that they continue to do? And how does it change the monuments and, and memorials that they've constructed? Um, it's uh, kind of really difficult to say, you know, look at me. Um, um, so the work of Memorial was always really um, difficult because they were um, sort of relentlessly harassed, you know, because they were, um, um, they were, uh, you know, it's not an exaggeration to say they were stigmatized as foreign agents in Russia. They went to court, including the European Court, Court of Human Rights to um, uh, protest the decision um, because because they were marked um, as foreign agents. Um, you know, sometimes they struggle to um, rent spaces, for example, for book fairs. You know, they have to put a special stamp on all their publications. Uh, they have to prefix everything they produce um, uh, with you know, uh, there is a particular way to um, kind of formulate, you know, that we are foreign agents and therefore, you know, this creates um, perhaps, um, uh, you know, some distrust towards them by ordinary um, citizens of um, the Russian Federation, you know. So um, um, it was difficult, you know, but then what happened um, in um, November 2012, uh in my memorial, you know, they organize talks, you know, and they also do, um, you know, you know, they watch films, you know, basically they show films and, um, you know, there was a film, you know, it's a film as a fiction film, you know, it's not a really documentary about um, um, Holodomor in Ukraine, you know, look at me, so that, that's um, um, the famine in in Ukraine in the early 1930s you know and uh, the the, um, the the kind of uh, the show itself was disrupted uh, by um, a group of, of thugs which basically stormed into memorial building you know they started shouting traitors and um, um, at that point uh, the members of the memorial and the members of the audience they called the police. You know, and the police um, arrived, let the thugs go and arrested whoever was in the building. They basically closed the doors. They took a few people to the police station for questioning. And um, yeah, I learned about that. I was um, at home in, in Scotland and I learned about that uh, through telegram messages, you know, which arrived instantly, you know, with images and everything else. Um and it, it was really um, scary, you know, because um, there was a, a, a moment, you know, when I thought that 
I would be um, a witness to extreme violence, you know, so not just a disruption, you know, but, um, you know, I didn't know if they were armed, you know, what the intentions were, you know, looking okay, so um, I was getting texts and um, um, images, you know, and then, you know, that, you know, um, that one violent event, you know, later triggered a whole series of um, trials, you know, which were completely biased and predetermined, you know, although Memorial and, um, you know, their lawyers, you know, who are excellent, uh, you know, really um, expert human rights lawyers, you know, they argued in courts against the closure of Memorial, you know, but um, there there was very little they they could do, you know, okay, so um, the trials were... um, a foregone conclusion. The closure was a foregone conclusion. Um, and first, the you know, memorial was closed down as an organization. Now they lost their um, their office as well, you know, which means that uh, they're losing their collection. Uh, the harassment of individual members um, continued. And I know that some were forced to flee and you know they are fugitives now in a sense um exiles perhaps um better and um um, they're fugitives from injustice in this case you know and um um in you know what's next for memorial you know it's um impossible to say their work continues um, in in a really patchy fashion, and you know, uh, some some people were in the office um, not long ago. Um, uh, but of course, you know, we, we hear more and more stories like this. You know, so I think it's just today that the Moscow Helsinki group was um, liquidated. You know, and they they go back to the nineteen seventies. So it. Um, times, you know, as a dissident uh, circle of um, human rights activists, you know, so, um, you know, w- w- what we see is um, the acceleration of uh, repressions um, in Russia, you know, so um, I don't really know, you know, what the future of the archive might be, you know, whether this is a um, total erasure, um, it's um, a complete closure, you know, uh, in Moscow because, again, you know, they will continue and they have international offices, for example, in Prague and in Paris. So some work will continue, you know, but, um, yeah, at the moment, you know, everything they do um, comes at, you know, great risk to to their freedom, you know, and um, well-being, you know, so, um, yeah. It is um, a very difficult moment in history. Absolutely, yeah. Um, well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you're working on next and if there's other research you're working on that builds on this project or completely new projects that you're embarking on now that this book's wrapped up. Uh, yeah, it's um, so there is, of course, this um, kind of, both desire to continue and uh, there is also the reality of it that it, it's an impossibility to continue in the same way uh, I, I think it is uh, quite precarious to go back to Moscow right now so um, I am 
in touch with, uh, um, you know, those people who became, uh, you know, close, uh, perhaps even, you know, friends and memorial. Um, I'm hoping that they will come back, you know, um, soon at some, you know, at some point, you know, um, uh, I'm hoping to, to meet um, some of them this spring in, um, in Prague. You know, to see um, if there is a possibility to continue. Um, I did a small ethnographic project in the meantime in Serbia where there is um, a slightly different kind of historical controversy going on because there are um, also monuments uh, built um, now, uh, for example, in the um, kind of northwestern part of Serbia where... um, some activists and especially anti-fascist um, groups um, argue that the monuments are built to Nazi collaborators. Um, and, um, you know, these are monuments. Um, there was one interesting uh, protest, you know, so one of the monuments uh, will have a figurative form when it's built. At the moment, it's just uh, a block of concrete, you know, but what these um, these anti-fascist activists did, they glued names of uh, people uh, who the monument is supposed to commemorate, you know, and on those lists where people, the names of people who were officially tried um, and convicted of murder during the Second World War. Uh, so, uh, you know, there is <laughs> kind of a very different context in a way, you know, like I mean, but um, um, uh, surprisingly similar use of names, you know. So I think names of the dead, they, um, they have this um, capacity to reveal history, you know, and they do it differently, you know, but uh, I, I think they are, um, you know, so, somewhat um, unexpected um, uh, and, you know, really powerful as well um, uh, signifiers of justice, you know, they keep bringing justice back, you know, and, you know, this is the kind of little short ethnographic study that I did because I couldn't go back to Russia, you know, like, and I'm hoping that in the future I will be able to maybe um, kind of start a bigger comparative study, you know, where, um, you know, the kind of historiography that Memorial um, does so bravely today can be perhaps linked to other projects um, in Europe and maybe elsewhere. That sounds amazing. Yeah. Um... Wow. Well, thank you so much for this conversation. I this is this has been such a um, amazing uh, body of work to to think about and talk about. Uh, and so, once again, uh, my guest today is Galina Ustinova Stepanovic, uh, author of Monumental Names: Archival Aesthetics and the Conjuration of History in Moscow, published by Rutledge in two thousand twenty-two. My name is Jen Hoyer, and you are listening to the Scholarly Communications channel of New Books Network.